This morning, as we return to the Gospel of Luke, we come to chapter 17 at verse 20, and there we find that Dr. Luke has already launched us on a whole new direction in the story of Jesus. At verse 19 in chapter 17, we find that uh, Jesus had come to the end of a section of teaching which had revealed the heart of God for the lost. Uh, That was a section of teaching that began in verse 15, and we've been looking at that up until this point. And in those, that particular session, from 15 to 17, Jesus left no doubt what God feels when he looks at you and me. As he takes us by the hand and he leads us out of darkness and into the light of his love. But in verse 20, the scene changes. Back in verse 11, we discovered that Jesus is actually on his final leg on the trip to Jerusalem where he has an appointment to keep with the cross. Some might call it a date with destiny. And certainly the disciples and those who were around Jesus were aware that this Jesus movement had been been elevated to a whole new level. The the, the level of opposition had escalated, and the nature of the conversations that were taking place between Jesus and his disciples had taken on a whole new tone, and it was a tone of sacrifice and cost. And I can't help but think, but there was a growing sense of impending crisis that was beginning to hover over this band as they moved their way to Jerusalem. And it was this this sense of impending crisis that may have caused the Pharisees to ask a question that begins this passage in in verse 20. It says, Once having been asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, Jesus chose to reply. Let me pause just at the question. Jesus were t- uh, the, the Pharisees were trying to determine what the point was of this Jesus movement. In their minds, it was obvious that Jesus is operating on an assumption that he is on a mission from God. So the, the question in their minds becomes, well, what does this, where does this mission culminate? What does it produce? When accomplished, what does this mission look like? You see, there had, in that time, been no shortage of revolutionaries who had sought to topple the Roman Empire, all of whom had generated this impression that they were on a mission from God. And and so there's a little bit more than just unease in their question. Jesus has already developed an impressive record and has himself a following. And he's he's heading into Jerusalem. They want to know what to anticipate. What will define the success of your movement, Jesus? What is your vision of the kingdom of God? And even more, how and when do you intend to make it happen? I would suggest that this is a profound moment for everyone who stands before Jesus. Every once in a while, uh, when I want to find out what a person really wants out of life, I will ask them the question, if you were to be the king of the world, what would your world look like? If you were to be the king of Vancouver or British Columbia or Canada, what would it all look like? If you were to be assured that your every command, your every wish, and your every whim would be fulfilled, what would happen? (laughs) And with Jesus, we already get a hint of of what's on his mind. In the the Gospel of Mark, 
Jesus began his public ministry, and he did it with an announcement in chapter 1, verse 15 of Mark, by saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. I'll show you what this kingdom of God looks like. And then he goes on to say, repent and believe in the gospel. And from that moment on, each episode of teaching, each miraculous act at the hand of Jesus added detail to what the kingdom of God is like. And here, the question becomes, when and how? Not so much what, but when and how? Jesus, if under God's authority you are the king of the world, how will this happen? When will you sweep aside all other kingdoms and make your kingdom complete? And for the Pharisees, the idea of the arrival of the Messiah was already a set prophetic expectation. It had been announced in the Old Testament there would be a time that would come where time would end and God would break on the scene. And so here's their chance to measure Jesus by demanding details. Make it personal, Jesus. If I am to believe that you are the Son of God, what's going to happen in my world and when? Tell me what it means for you to be king. And Jesus replies then in verse 20. He says, The kingdom of God does not come with your careful observations, nor will people say, here it is, or there it is, because the kingdom of God, notice, is within you. Move slowly and carefully with me through this one, please. This simple statement demands full attention. Before you consider any other details, there must be clarity in this definition. The kingdom of God is within you. For many, the word kingdom conjures up an image of territory, lands and castles, courts and cathedrals, the type of thing that comes from, what, World of Warfare games? (laughs) That can be mapped on a map or measured, as Jesus says, observed as a political entity or a social reality. You can point to it and say, here it is, look at the map. There it is, look at the map. But Jesus says, my kingdom, the kingdom of God, is different. It is not found on geography. The geography of my kingdom is your heart. It is within you. And with that, he's saying the kingdom of God exists in every human heart in which Jesus reigns as king. Every human heart that belongs to him. It is a territory, this kingdom of God, that is not mapped in soil, but is charted in the human soul. It is defined by a relationship where humans, one by one, have surrendered themselves with a very humble prayer, Jesus, you are Lord of my life. And that is the crowning accomplishment where Jesus as king becomes the ruler of life. And he is determined to have a relationship with you. You know what this means? It means that your life is of critical value to God. Your life is a matter of kingdom consequence. And everything about you has become an outpost of the kingdom of God in this rebellious world. And it's all because you have a direct relationship with the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. 
That's huge. That is huge. Kings of this world care very little for the individuals they rule. In Canada, Stephen Harper may be a very fine man. I have to believe so. But as a prime minister, I suspect that he does not know your name, even though you may get a mailing from his party. He does not know your name. But Jesus knows you by name and knows more about you than you know about yourself. And he cares for you with that knowledge. And should you choose to live in Christ, you now become kingdom territory. And everything about you, who you are and what you do, all of it is in a relationship with the Lord who loved you and gave himself for you. And so when Jesus said that, if you, that you cannot quantify the kingdom of God by saying here it is or there it is, I would suggest that while you can't find the kingdom of God on the map, you can identify the kingdom of God by pointing at anyone who belongs to him. So in answer to the question, where is the kingdom of God? It's right there. It's right there. It's right there. It's right there. 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 I hope it's right there. I'd like to think it's right here. Because that is where the map is drawn. You see, you're of critical worth to the kingdom of God, even more than you are critically important in the kingdom, in the kingdom of God. Some of you may have a study Bible that notes a question about the word within. It was within you. The kingdom of God is within you. It can also be translated as among you, that that word, that preposition. Within, also among. And the kingdom of God is something that is shared. We share it in relationship with others who are kingdom territory as well. And we share it with the people of the kingdom. What happens in reality, as a relationship between you and God... It all becomes a critical business of the relationship that we have with one another as well. And if your life is kingdom territory, then your relationships, the ones that we share here, as simple as they may seem, are all a matter of kingdom business. And you are never more engaged in kingdom business than when you are mobilized in a ministry with one another. You you aren't just teaching Sunday school. You're on kingdom business. You're not just leading worship. You are on kingdom business. You're not just engaged in a Bible study. You are on a kingdom mission. The kingdom of God is among us, as well as within you, right now. Do you know that to be true? If so, then his words become a real wake-up call. In fact, I think that Jesus intended it to be a wake-up call because if you'll notice, going back to Luke chapter 17 and verse 20, then he immediately turns to his disciples. Not to talk to the Pharisees, but he turns to his disciples. For in hearing it, it was a wake-up call for them, and then in looking at his disciples, as he looks at you and me, he presses the point home. Look at verse 22. Then he said to his disciples... The time is coming when you will long to see one of the days of Son of Man, but you will not see it. Now, I want to stop here for just a moment and explain what Jesus is about to teach. Again, some of you have in your study Bibles a note in the margin that defines the rest of this passage as teaching about the second coming of Jesus Christ. And it's true. 
The focus of the next 15 verses point to that moment when Jesus comes again. The the apocalypse, the judgment day, the final moment of history, the dawning of eternity, the second coming of Jesus Christ. All those names come together. And when you read in the Bible, it is a fact that you cannot ignore. The scriptures record his first coming, his death and his resurrection, and his ascension into heaven. All events that have already taken place, leaving only one more critical event to come, and that is his second coming. The time in between, however, his ascension into heaven and that second coming has a very special theological name. It is called the end times. The time in between is a period of history where where between his ascending to heaven and his second coming... Those are the end times. And for 2,000 years at least, we have been living in end times. Now, I am keenly aware of the obsession that many have with that term, end times. There are books written that define the signs of the times in an attempt to predict whenever Jesus will come. And there are media preachers who for years have made it their reputation as being teachers of prophecy and end times and who have made it their business to anticipate the details of the second coming of Christ. In my life in ministry, I've been through at least seven cycles of end-time speculation and teaching. From the, from, from the first cycle, which was surrounding the late great planet Earth, and, and then there had been wars. Each one of them have erupted in a teaching on end times. And then there are books flying off the shelves about Armageddon. And, and there have been leaders like Michael, uh, uh, well, there have been world leaders like Michael Gorbachev, Mikhail Gorbachev, who carried that unfortunate birthmark on his forehead and launched a whole other series about that being the mark of the beast. What a bummer having a birthmark like that. And and then there have been dates like Y2K and an endless stream of predictions uh, about the end of the world. And by the way, do you know today is the last day of earth? Because tonight we're going to have a blood moon. And some of you have heard the teachers say Jesus is coming at about 10.20 tonight. And to be honest... I've had to take some care in dealing with these subjects because the fact is I have had people consistently over each of those cycles take me to task for not preaching prophecy like those on TV. How dare I not prepare believers for end times? (laughs) The fact is that that is not a new phenomenon. In the year 1900, the Prince of Preachers, uh, Charles Spurgeon, described the very same thing happening to him. And he did it in his sermon, all around ministry. He writes, he says, there are some who amuse themselves with hobbies instead of preaching the gospel. He says, I I have known certain brethren who give themselves solely to expound a prophecy, speculators who have left the old ship of the gospel to become prophets. And then he goes on through his own cycles. He said, the beast of Revelation was reported to be Napoleon I. And then the creature suddenly reappeared in his nephew, Napoleon III. And by and by, the deadly wound was healed, and the prince imperial then wore the dreadful honors of the prophetic book. But the prince is not dead, and it will be, is now dead, and it will now be needful for seers to invent a whole new theory. <clears throat> there is no fear, but that they will do it before long. Meanwhile, he says, Upon our ministry under God, we shall hang everlasting things. Life and death and heaven and hell. These are the issues of the kingdom of God, and for this 
the gospel is to be preached. (laughs) So when it comes to the issues of the day or the hour of his coming, well, even Jesus declared in Matthew chapter 24, verse 36, that he wasn't sure of the details. He did not know. But what he did know and what he declared in authority and what is in authority in this passage is that it is absolute that the kingdom of God is within you and it endures forever and that Jesus is coming again. And when he comes, <laughs> he, he draws us to himself and all things become new. But since Jesus has come to you and me right now, we are under his authority right now. The kingdom of God is within us. So in light of the certainty of his coming again, he turns to his disciples and speaks to them as they are. They are outposts of the kingdom of God and what they are to do right now. And Jesus lays out the order of what to do right now from this point on. Because his coming is sudden, he says. Don't be discouraged by its delay. Look at verses 22 through 25. He says, The days will come when you will long to see the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. And, and they will say to you, Oh, look here, look there. Don't go away and run with them, for just as the lightning, when it flashes out of the one part of the sky, shines to the other part of the sky, so will the Son of Man be in his day. Don't be discouraged by delay. You, you, you see the elements of suddenness in those verses, don't you? The idea of, 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 of lightning. When Jesus comes, it will be like a flash of lightning. It will be sudden, and it will also be unmistakable. What I want you to note here, though, is the condition that Jesus addresses. The, the, the disciples may long for this day, may, may even but in desperation be tempted to run off in different directions because of the delay in his company, his coming. There is a delay. Jesus refers to it in verse 25. But first, Jesus has a mission to accomplish, and it is defined by the suffering of many things, all of which lead to the cross, and even though it may also then produce the open grave, I would uh, suggest that the mission continues on in the life of God's people, carrying the kingdom of God with the gospel into the whole world. There is business, and it takes time. Years centuries, millennial, dare I say, along with that suffering as well. And because time is delayed and suffering occurs and there's a cost to discipleship, it's no wonder that some may be tempted to run off in different directions in their faith. But Jesus says, look, my coming is going to be sudden. Don't be discouraged by its delay." Because also in saying that his kingdom is, that his coming is sudden, it's also, my coming is also certain. So at the first point in this teaching, he says, my coming is sudden, pay attention, stay to the task. Then the second thing he says in verses 26 through 29 is my coming is, I'm sorry, my, my, (laughs) I got this wrong here. Jesus, the first thing he said was my coming is sudden, stay the course. The second thing he says, my coming is sudden, pay attention. Look at verses 26 through 29. And just as it happens in the days of Noah, so it shall also be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating, they were drinking, they were marrying, they were being given marriage until that day that Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. 
And it was the same thing that happened in the days of Lot. They were eating, they were drinking, they were buying, they were selling, they were planting, they were building. But on the day that, that Lot went out from Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and it destroyed them all. It will be just the same on the day that the Son of Man is revealed. And in each of those cases, with Noah as well as with Lot, even though people had been given a warning, they had gotten used to living their days doing nothing but doing their own thing. And doing their own thing without a second thought. In fact, they had learned to laugh at the warnings. You saw that pictures with Noah, even with Lot. And with their laughter, and in each laugh, they dismissed God and his warnings. Years later, Paul, uh, Peter, I'm sorry, Peter would echo these words in 2 Peter chapter 3, and he writes, In the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts, saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. Get over it. The fact is, that's not true. It's on the record. God suddenly, having already uh, uh, striking through the heavens and putting an end to time for a world that that was in in, in disobedience with them. It was a world that was destroyed by flood and two cities were destroyed by fire that was done suddenly and absolutely. And just because Jesus' second coming hasn't happened yet, it does not make it a myth. God's timing may be different than ours, but the clock is a steady clock. And again, Peter continues to write in verse 8, he says, With the Lord, one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years are as one day, but the clock is ticking. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but he is patient toward you, not wishing for any of you to perish, but for all to come to repentance. What's the principle here? The humdrum routines of life should not lull you into thinking that God's promises are forgotten or that his deadline has been canceled or that the consequences of your actions don't matter. The clock is ticking. The kingdom is within us. And through our lives, we have got work to do. Don't lose focus. So his coming is sudden. Don't get lazy. Don't lose focus. Stay the course. Pay attention. And one more lesson. Be prepared. Listen to Luke chapter 17, verses 30 through 37 as I read. It will be just, I'm sorry, 31. On that day, let no one who is on the housetop, whose goods are in the house, go down and take them away. Likewise, let not the one who is in the field turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to keep his life shall lose it, and whoever loses his life shall preserve it. I tell you, on that night there will be two men in one bed, and one will be taken, the other will be left. And there will be two women grinding in the same place, one will be taken, the other one left. Two men will be in the field, one will be taken, the other will be left. And in verse 37 he says, and they answered him, and they said, where, Lord? And he said, where will they be taken? He said, where the body is, there will also the vultures be gathered. Ask yourself a question. What matters to you most? Some of you have played with that question and expanded by thinking to yourself, hmm, I I know what matters most by asking this question. If your home was at risk, if you were in your home and you were forced to run, 
For whatever reason might be, fire or earthquake or tidal wave that is coming, and you only had seconds, what would you take? What you take would probably be an indication of what, you matter, what matters most to you. But, 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 but what happens in that time is that there comes a moment when you can no longer think about it. You can only do it. So what's most precious to you? I love the question that Jesus raises in verse 33. Whoever tries to keep his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life will preserve it. What, what, what does it mean for you to lose your life right now? Not, but, to, but to hand it over to Jesus Christ. There's a beautiful verse in Galatians chapter 2.20 that says, I have been crucified with Christ, and so now, 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 I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I don't have to grab anything else when I run out of the house because the kingdom of God is within me right now. And when he comes again, he is all I need. That's not something you can resolve in the future. That is something that has to be determined right now and then be lived out in every day of your life. Because his coming is sudden, the question is, are you prepared? I'm fascinated that the disciples focused on this as a life and death issue. With their question, that becomes very clear. With the second coming of Christ, all of humanity faced the final consequences. One remains, another loss. In verse 37, the disciples asked the question, well, where do they go? Where do they go? It's almost as if to say, don't they get a second chance? I realize there's some questions about Jesus' answer, but the one fact stands. When he comes, the time is up. Dead is dead. Vultures gather. And all that remains is for them to circle over the corpse. And there is no second chance in the, way of, in the, in, in the, in the, in the face of the second coming. So now is the time for you to decide, what are you going to do? You see, God has held out time for you and me, but it won't hold out forever. And I I don't know what prayer you have asking God to hold back the closing of time. You may be a child of God, but you may be asking Him to hold back on the the sands of time because there may be some unfinished tasks in your life. And hearing, hearing this, that Jesus is coming again and sudden, you may say to yourself, Jesus, not yet, not not yet, not 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 yet. Please hold up. I'm not I'm not ready. I've got some things I'd really like to, to do. Or you may not yet belong to God. And so the thought of the suddenness of his coming may in fact bring a prayer to your lips and you say, not yet, not, not, not yet. Please, I'm not ready. I don't know what your prayer is, but I do know this. A time is coming when God will, as the old preacher put it, will blot out time and will start the wheel of eternity. In 1927, an old African-American preacher, James Weldon Johnson, wrote a series of seven sermons, (laughs) beginning with creation and ended with the Judgment Day. Uh, uh, From the moment where time began to the time when time will be no more. He says in this sermon, he says, In that great day, people, in that great day, God is going to rain down fire. God is going to sit in the middle of the air to judge the quick and the dead. In that great day when God is going to rain down fire, where are you going to be? 
And God will divide the sheep from the goats, the one on the right, the other on the left. And to them on the right, God are going to say, enter my kingdom. And to them on the left, God are going to say, depart from me into the everlasting darkness, down into the bottomless pit. And the wicked, like lumps of lead, will begun to fall. Too late, sinner, too late. Goodbye, sinner, goodbye. In hell, sinner, in hell, beyond the reach of the love of God. And I hear a voice crying and crying, and it says, Time shall be no more. Time shall be no more. Time shall be no more. And the sun will go out like a candle in the wind. And the stars will fall like cinders. And the sea will burn like tar. And the earth will melt and be dissolved. And the sky will roll up like a scroll. And with a wave of his hand, God will blot out time and start the wheel of eternity. Oh, sinner, sinner, oh, sinner, where will you stand in that great day when God are going to rain down fire. Are you ready for that moment? When God will blot out time and start the wheel of eternity? Where are you going to turn when you see the vultures gather? What will you say when Christ steps out on the stage and says, enough, time shall be no more? Where will you stand in that great day when God is going to rain down fire? If you are not prepared for the last day, you are not prepared for any day of the week at all. And it might be that today actually becomes that day of destiny for you right now. The Bible says, as many as receive him, that is Jesus Christ the King of kings, the Lord of lords, as many as receive him, to them he became the right, right now, to be the children of God, those who believe in his name. Where do you stand? Where do you stand? The king is coming. It's time to decide. Would you pray with me?